I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time this morning. Uh, Father, uh, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us and right now to me specifically. God, you know uh, everything that's going on in every heart in this room, including mine. And I pray that we would grab a hold of you this morning. I pray that we'd see your son Jesus more clearly this morning. I pray that I would grab a hold of him this morning by faith, remembering that he's with me and that he is with us and that he desires to bring us good things, that his gospel is good news to weary people who need it, who need encouragement, who need strength. And I pray that this morning that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened in your son Jesus. We love him. We want to love him more and each other more. I want to lift up all these things and ask for them in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here along with Tom. And I want to welcome you to our gathering. Uh, this morning we're going to continue in our Jesus Is series. And if you're new, we've been working through the book of John. And the book of John is a spectacular, it's the gospel of John, it's the story about Jesus. And we've been kind of slowly working through it from the time that we started our church last year. We started our Sunday morning gatherings. I'm picking up back, back up on it this weekend. And so this morning, to kind of like get us started, get us thinking about the text, kind of to enter into it, uh, I want to share a thought with you, which is this. Every single day that we're alive, that we're breathing, that we're here on this earth, we hear things we don't like. Every single day. Uh, for me this week, it was the sound of squeaky brakes reminding me, like, pay attention to me, take care of me. Um, it's that sound, that buzzing sound when your phone is going off right as you're about to fall asleep and it lights up your room. It's that sound. You hear that, that buzzing sound, it's awful. Um, this week, I got a message uh, where someone just let, left, like, the vague and cryptic call me. And I'm just like, who died? That's where I initially immediately go. Uh, I get freaked out and worried. Um, every, every day we just hear stuff that we don't want to hear. And typically for me, I'm a parent, so a lot of the times it comes out of the mouths of my children. And it usually sounds like, no, he took it, I want it, it's mine, like that sort of thing, just every day. Yesterday it was, uh, my son's birthday is coming up soon, and it was like, buddy, what do you want for your birthday? A metal detector. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> what and why, I don't know. Or, uh, for my daughter, uh, I farted on your lap, but didn't poop. That was another one, direct quote. We hear stuff all the time that we don't want to hear. Most of the time, it's like relatively minor stuff. Like last night, I was at Starbucks working on my message, and I was pumped about ordering a pumpkin scone, if you've ever had one of those before. It's like the one thing that I get excited about at Starbucks. And I'm like, can I get that pumpkin scone and can you heat it up for me? And the sound that I heard that I didn't like was that. We can't do that. They're pre-glazed. So dumb. <laughs> I ate a cold scone. It's just every day we hear things we don't like. And most of the time we can just kind of brush it off and just move on like pretty quickly. But other times though, it like hits us a lot harder. So, for example, uh, sometimes it's that, you know, it's that job that you were, like, really hoping that you'd get that didn't pan out. You don't like to hear that. Sometimes it's, like, the test results that you're, like, hoping will come back 
the way you want them to, and then it's like it's not what I wanted to hear. Or it's that phone call from the bank that says, you know, you didn't get approved for the loan. You get your grades and they're ugly. You're on academic probation. Or you get an email from your boss. Come by when you get in the office. Come in when you get in the office Monday morning. And you know it's not for a commendation. Or you get an alert on your banking app that just says account balance low. You get a message from your kid's school. And it can go on and on. Like every day we just, we hear things we don't like. Sometimes it's no big deal, other times it's a big deal. But here's the thing as I've been thinking and chewing about this this week, when we hear stuff that we don't like, typically we react. There is a reaction. Sometimes we feel upset, sometimes we feel just confused, sometimes we feel afraid, sometimes we feel angry, irritated, frustrated, sad, hurt, you name it. No matter what your reaction to these things is like, the way that we respond typically reveals something about what's on our hearts, about what we value, about what we cherish. Like, for example, it doesn't have to be something that you hear. It could just be like a, an act. Somebody gives you a look. Like, like one of these, I don't know. I'm not good at it. Just a look. And you know what happens? It's like you feel insecure. And all of a sudden you realize, like, man, I really value what people think about me. I really care about that. You get like a, an unexpected bill or like your financial situation changes and all of a sudden all this anxiety comes out and you realize like, oh, I value security like a ton. If someone doesn't respond to your text, you get mad. You get a window into like how much you value being in control or being acknowledged or whatever the case may be. When we face something we don't like, like our hearts are revealed, they're exposed. And here's the thing, today we're going to see that this applies to our relationship with Jesus, because Jesus says things we don't like sometimes. And when he does, we get to see what we really value. But here's the thing I've been thinking about this week. It's actually an incredible opportunity. It's a crazy opportunity for us, because when we see what we really value, it's like Jesus is actually inviting us to do some pretty courageous work, which is to reframe our desires in light of what he desires for us. I heard somebody say that this week, and I was like, that's it? reframing our desires around what he desires for us. That's a huge part of the work of growing as a disciple. And so we're going to turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we're going to see how this works. John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Is everybody with me? Okay, cool. So uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in John. So I'll kind of quickly catch this up. Jesus is on the scene, and he's doing and saying some pretty remarkable, incredible things. So he's performed just all these different signs. Uh, He turned water into wine, kind of like, if you were here for that message, he's kind of restarting the party that God started a creation that was halted during the fall. And here he is, like he's starting God's party again. He's healing sick people. He takes a filet of fish sandwich and feeds thousands with it. I mean, he's doing some like pretty remarkable things. He's kind of up upending the brokenness of our creation and making everything new. And he's not just doing work, works that are incredible, he's also saying things that are outlandish. For example, he's reinterpreting the Bible around himself. So imagine your favorite Bible stories are, like, oh, God provided manna in the desert for our ancestors back in the day. Or, I love it when God gives Abraham and Sarah a child miraculously when they're 90 years old, when Abraham's 100. Or you just love the story of the Passover, where it's like God is rescuing his people through the blood of a lamb. 
that was slain for the sins of the people. And then Jesus is on the scene saying, those stories, they're about me. They're about me. Now come and follow me. He's doing and saying wild things that provoked a response from people. Some people were completely drawn in to Jesus. Some people who, typically it's the people that really understood like how messed up they were and how broken they were. They usually did really well with Jesus. So to think like the woman at the well who didn't have like a prayer to stand on. She didn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, she'd been with five guys. She was living with a guy that wasn't her husband. Pretty scandalous stuff, especially back then. And she was all about Jesus when he showed up. So, that, so Jesus has this way of like drawing people in. And at the same time, there's people that just resist him, that don't like what he has to say. Sometimes his words are met with misunderstanding, with distrust, with resistance, or with opposition. And today, we're going to actually catch up with an instance like that. This is John 8, 48. John 8, verses 48 to 59. Here we go. Verse 48 says this. The Jews responded to him, talking to Jesus, aren't we, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, real quick. What is the significance of them calling Jesus a Samaritan? The best way I could describe it, I grew up in South Orange County in the 90s. So it was kind of like the religious way of being called a, seller and a, a sellout and a poser at the same time. In like one word for wearing Hawaiian shirts and skate shoes at the same time. It's like, make up your mind. Pick one. Uh, so they, like, Jesus was, in their minds, like, Jesus was compromised. Uh, they were saying, you're compromised. You have a, faith, a false faith. You're a sellout and a poser. That's what they're telling Jesus. And then verse 49 says, I do not have a demon, Jesus answered them. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges I thought this was so interesting as I was reading this text this week, because notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't pick up on the slam, the Samaritan slam. He just leaves it to the side and deals with the, the charge about him having a demon. And as I thought about it, I was like, I think, I think he does that because he loves the Samaritans. Who, who was he with back in John 5 for the Samaritans? Who was receptive to his message? The Samaritans. They actually were like, he had to stay a couple days with them because they were so open, so ready to receive him while the people that are in front of him are rejecting him. And it got me thinking about us. And the Samaritans kind of have like this fascinating blend of like a rough family lineage and also a rough like kind of religious pedigree. And that's why being called Samaritan is a slam. And it got me thinking about us and it got me thinking about how Maybe you have like a rough family history. Maybe you have like distortion, like religious distortions are a part of your history. Maybe it's legalism, maybe it's a cult or whatever. But here's the, the cool thing I thought about this. Like Jesus is not afraid of it. He's not, he's not bummed to be identified with you. If you put your faith in him, if you trust him, if you believe him, he welcomes all who come to him. He's like, come to me. No matter what the background is, I'm not ashamed to be identified with you. So if that's you, this is good news. That he didn't pick up on that slam. He's not worried about it. And so you don't need to be either. Verse 51. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? Just a slight hint of irony here. Who do you think you are, God? 
To which I'd be like, well, it's not that you say it. I am. But he doesn't do that right away. He actually says, verse 54, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say, he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And then the big one, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they grabbed the stones to throw it at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. He just went on his way. Crazy stuff. Jesus isn't like, he's not pumping himself up. He's not like trying to be this big thing. He's actually dealing with the people for their own benefit. He's explaining things so that they might believe in him. But he does have to say the truth. I am. Which, if you think about it and if you've been following with us during the the series on John, Jesus is just bringing his teaching to kind of like its logical conclusion. He's already said, it's already been told, I am the Lamb of God. I am the bread from heaven. I'm the one who jumpstarts the party. I'm the one who brings light to this dark world. I heal broken bodies. I set people free from slavery. I am. It's the conclusion of everything he's been doing, in a sense, the culmination of it. It's, this is this moment where Jesus is revealing himself as the, as the God who spoke to, to Moses and Israel. Because if you remember, God did all these different, these amazing signs and wonders. He did mighty signs to release Israel from slavery in Egypt. He was the one who told, the, he was the one who led his people into the promised land. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing that. I am he. He's doing that for us. He's doing that for everyone who believes in him. I'm here. So these words, like they almost got Jesus killed, but that wasn't part of the script. So he was able to kind of slip away. So, That's all a long background, but what I'm saying is like the most important part is that Jesus sometimes says things that we don't like. He makes outlandish claims that we have a hard time believing, like I am, which really threaten people's theology. Jesus will, if you're like a big theology guy or gal, Jesus will threaten your theology sometimes. And you may be fine with Jesus' theological claims, but even if you are, I am totally convinced that Jesus is going to say things that we won't like sometimes, which makes sense. It makes total sense that some of the things Jesus says we won't like. As I was thinking about it, humanity is kind of like a group of people who were born in like an underground colony. I don't know if, if anybody's ever watched uh, Kimmy, the Kimmy Schmidt show. Anybody know what I'm talking about from Netflix? What's that show called? I don't remember. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. Somebody, maybe, if you haven't watched it, I'll explain it here in a second. But humanity is kind of like the, Kim, the group that Kimmy Schmidt was with. Uh, there was, this was like this group that was underground, who was born into a, a colony that was run by like an oppressive ruler. And all they knew was life underground in the dark, kind of like under the slave driver. That's all they knew. But imagine one day somebody comes and opens the door. You've been underground your whole life. The door comes, the door's open, sunlight comes in. Your oppressor is tied up, taken away. And then somebody extends a hand to you and says, I'm here to get you. I'm here to set you free. But here's the thing. You've never seen daylight before in your life. So your natural instinct is going to be, is it going to be like, cool, take me out? No, it's probably going to be like, don't. It's going to be to hide and shrink because it's dark. You need time to adjust. 
your natural instinct is going to be to come back into the light, to hold on to what you know. Even if it's darkness, the darkness is going to feel safe, at least familiar, than this whole new world that you're being called into above ground. And Jesus is doing that with us. He's calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But the light hurts our eyes as we adjust to it. And there's also this reality, too, which I was chewing on. We're bloodied and bruised from our previous ruler, sin and Satan. So we struggle to trust our new ruler, Jesus. We struggle to trust his words. We struggle to trust his work. But there's really good news because Jesus wants our priorities straight. Thank you, Lisa, for reminding me of this this week. Jesus wants our priorities straight for our good and his kingdom, not to control us. His purpose isn't to control So with that said, I've been thinking about our church specifically, about things that Jesus has said that we might not like necessarily, that we might struggle with, that we might have a hard hard time receiving. And so because I love lists, I just came up with the top five ways that I think we are tempted to resist what Jesus has to say to us. And the reason I want to go through this list is because I think there's an opportunity for us to see what we really value, what we really care about, and then have Jesus reframe our desires around what he wants for us so that we can be set free, so that we can walk in freedom. Did I draw something? Oh, thank you. Servant, love it. Okay, number one. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Uh, number one. So I think w- the first way that I want to talk about resisting Jesus' words is that we bring God our accomplishments instead of receiving his grace. We bring God our accomplishments instead of receiving his grace. So we're going to look at Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. There's a very famous passage here that Jesus explains to us how like, our temptation is to actually bring him what, what we're doing instead of receiving his grace. So verse 9 says this, He, that being Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. So one was sort of like a religious good person and the other person was somebody who was kind of like someone who extorted people, who robbed, who took advantage of people. Verse 11, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. In verse 13, it shifts over to the tax collector who, wasn't, who was standing far off. who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified and this one would be the tax collector rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, we're talking about ways in which I think we struggle to receive Jesus' words. And I think bringing God our accomplishments is one. So let's pretend for a moment that there's always a song playing in your heart. Let's just say that what's playing in your heart is just like what you're thinking about, what kind of drives you and motivates you. And let's just say that you're approaching God. What would you say is like kind of the song that's in your heart in that moment when you're coming to God? Is it everything is awesome? You watch the Lego movie? I love that movie. Everything is awesome. I've done everything you've said, and I'm part of the team. Like, everything is awesome. Is that, is that kind of how, is that what's on your heart when you approach God? 
Or, on the flip side, if you ever watch that movie, there's also like a Batman character who's like, darkness, black hole, <laughs> the opposite of light. That's kind of like the song in his head. And I think we could approach God these ways. We could kind of bring like our our religious achievements, like everything is awesome, or on the flip side, if we feel like we're not matching up, it can be everything is awful, and I'm totally unworthy. But in any case, it's, it's looking to our own merit. It's looking to what we bring to the table. And as I was thinking about this, I think there's a reality that like maybe you, you were like me, and you were kind of raised in an environment that prized achievement. Like don't, We can't underestimate how that's actually affected the way that we approach God. It's a big deal. We can approach God the same way we might approach our parents when we're kids. Look at my trophy, Daddy. Look at my report card. Look at my titles. Look at the scholarships I got, or whatever it is. And here's the good news. God isn't after your achievements, but he's after your freedom and your joy. So if you feel disqualified because of your lack of achievements, God's kingdom is not built on your merit, but on his mercy to you. And I think some of us this morning, as I've prayed about it, as I've thought about our church, I think there's a reality that we might be bringing some of our merit to God. Maybe it's, God, look at my prayer life. Look at my zeal. Look at my discipline or whatever it might be. Look at how I treat other people. How do you know this is you? Well, the story tells us that we have a tendency of looking down on other people who don't match up, who aren't up to our standards. There's a bunch of ways this can look like. I know for me as a parent... In my heart, sometimes it's like, oh, at least I'm not like so-and-so who yells at their kids. Or at least I'm not like so-and-so whose kids never listen, which is funny. Because my kid was up here this morning, I guess, running around, uh, clotheslining my wife before the, the gathering started. I don't know. I, wasn't, I was running late, so I didn't see it. It's one of those mornings. It could be like a parenting thing, like we look down at other people. Uh, it could be a fun thing, like I'm definitely more fun than that guy. It could be silly. It could be anything. It could be your schedule, like... I'm not lazy like so-and-so. I'm not filling up every free minute like so-and-so. It could be theology. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Calvinist. Thank you, Jesus. Zero points, Lord. Zero point Calvinist. Or on the flip side, it could be like, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an Arminian. Soli Deo Gloria. I've got a a tulip tattooed on my arm. It could be like, thank you, God, I'm not Roman Catholic. I know that what I'm eating is bread, and it stays bread the whole time. (laughs) Whatever it is, we can turn anything into this. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not sedentary. I work out three to four times a week, not like so-and-so. Or thank you, God, that I'm not a gym rat. I work out zero times a week. This morning, as you approach God, are you bringing your accomplishments to him? Or are you disqualifying yourself because you've done so much wrong? You feel guilt and shame. Or are you a recipient of his grace and mercy? If you're not receiving his grace, one of the things that I felt as I was reading it is like Jesus is inviting us to bring bring him our need, not our accomplishment. We can bring him what we need. He wants to forgive and clean and restore us based on what he did, not based on what you did or didn't do. I think that's the first way that we can have a hard time and resist Jesus' word is by bringing our accomplishments to him rather than receiving his grace. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, second thing. Sometimes I think we can use God for his stuff rather than enjoying relationship with him. 
if you're taking notes. I think sometimes we can use God for his stuff rather than enjoying relationship with him. I feel like this is actually something that I missed for a long time. I didn't get this at all. If you've ever heard the parable of the prodigal son, it's a pretty popular, famous story in the Bible. Um, How many sons are in the story? There's two. And typically the way the story is told is kind of like, this is the story of a son who's kind of gone wayward and he's, he's ruined his life with reckless living and then he turned to God and he found favor. And that is absolutely true. That's not, not the case. However, there is a second part to this story, a whole backside that rarely ever gets talked about. So we're going to read that real quick. I think this is a tendency that we might fall into. We might use God for his stuff rather than enjoying relationship with him. This is out of Luke I think it's Luke 15, so if we got it, verses 25 to 32. should have it up on the screen. Yep. It says this. So the, the younger son has been brought back in. He, like, ruined his life through riotous living, and then he's back. And then the father throws him a party, and it's this, like, wild scene. Like, everybody's excited and happy that this son who was gone is now back. And verse 25 says, the older son, the older brother, was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of his servants, questioning what these things meant. And it says this, your brother is here. So imagine if your sibling was gone for five years, you hadn't heard from him, you knew he was kind of like wasting his life in another country, and then he's back. And he kind of, he took the inheritance, divided it up. It's not a good situation, but he's back. And so the older brother, he hears these words, your brother is here, and your father has slaughtered and fattened Slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But then, verse 28, the older brother became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. His father came out to him, but he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. But the son of yours came, and he's devoured your assets, which is true, with prostitutes, and you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, son, he said to him, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you see like the second half of the story? There's two brothers who are struggling with their dad in different ways. This is the question. God, this would be like, dad, you're generous towards him. What about me? That's ultimately the question that this older brother is asking. Don't I deserve a little party in my honor, Lord? Where are my balloons? Where's my party? Where are my gifts? What about me? Side note, I think I've heard this here before, but this, we know that this is true because when we throw a kid's birthday party, you have to have bags for everybody. And it presupposes that someone's going to ask, what about me? That they're all going to actually ask, what about me? I think this is just human nature. How do you know this is you? As I was looking at the story, the older brother was jealous. He was isolating himself, and he was triggered by celebration when somebody got what he didn't get, when somebody got what he wanted. And I'm like, dude, that could so be us. It could be marriage for you. It could be children. It could be health, like somebody gets good news that you've been wanting to hear, but it's not good for you still. It could be a role, like somebody gets the role that you want. And 
I've been in this space, and I know I'm prone to go there. Uh, I actually this was probably six months ago, but there's a lot of new faces, so um, a lot of you guys probably haven't heard, but I went through, I'm coming out of probably, gosh, like five years of being really envious of other people's gifts in the church, and I was totally unaware until very recently. Um, I have been surrounded by really gifted people for a long time in different contexts, it had actually caused me to kind of turn inward and be like, I'm not getting, I, what about me? Is the question I would ask. Like, I see so-and-so who's got this incredible gift, such talent, such desire, such passion, such fruitfulness. And in that situation, I'd like isolate and kind of withdraw. I was still at the party. This is the hard part with the older brother. Is the, the older brother, where is he? He's still at the party. He's just outside the door being summoned back in. So you can be in the church doing stuff, but you could still, at a heart level, be kind of outside the party. And God's like, come in. And for me, I think this gifts envy thing like just crushed me when I realized, I realized two things. Number one, I was reading Exodus 20, I think it was, the Ten Commandments, and it said, don't covet your neighbors this, that, and the other. And then it hit me, oh, that probably includes their gifts. I'm actually sinning against God. I'm actually in rebellion in this area of my life. And when I started doing the heart work of unearthing, what, what's going on? There was a lie that came up, which was that God is stingy. God is stingy with me. He's given other, like, other people good things, but he hasn't given me what I want. You're stingy. You're generous with others, but stingy with me. And so through this whole process, I've realized like I'm the older brother in the story. And I can resent my father for being generous with others, giving gifts to other people that I want. But I've, I sensed him drawing me back into the party, calling me back in, saying, come on back. The gifts I've given other people, they're for you. They're actually for you. You need other people to use their gifts so that you can grow up into maturity. You need so-and-so's teaching gift. You need so-and-so's evangelistic gift. You need so-and-so's gift of administration. Lord knows I need that. Like, I need the, the body. Tom was talking about the body of Christ like, I need the body. I don't get to resent the body. I need the body. And I'll, also, I think God showed me like, those gifts are an extension of himself. He's the generous God who gives good gifts. And I can celebrate with other people because I'm celebrating him ultimately and his generosity and his mercy. But I'm just, I'm just sharing this to say like, if this is you, I get it. This is a very easy place to end up in. It doesn't have to be gifts. It could be, like I said, marriage, children. It could be a lot of things. But what we miss is that God is really generous, that he's actually really good to us, that we don't deserve anything, but he's throwing us a party and inviting us into it. That's what we're missing. I don't think you guys want to miss that. I certainly don't want to miss that. I don't want to be outside the party being like, what about me? When there's a party, there's music, there's dancing, the, the fatted calf, like, you get to eat that. It wasn't slaughtered for you, but you get to eat it. It's still good. There's still wine. There's still celebration and party. In the church, like, we get to be a party, a celebration of God's goodness. But if we stay outside the party, we're going to miss it. So sometimes we, we can end up in a space where we use God for his stuff rather than enjoy a relationship with him. And I think this morning God just wants to remind you, like, I'm good. I am generous. Come into the party. Don't hang out outside. Don't be grumpy. 
Like, come, come here, let me give you a hug. Come here. You know how with your kids you've got to do that sometimes? Like, come here, come on, yeah. You, basically, God's doing that this morning. Okay, so sometimes we use God for his stuff rather than enjoy a relationship with him. Number three, uh, sometimes we hold on to hurts as opposed to working through them. Sometimes we hold on to hurts as opposed to working through them. By the way, as I'm going through these, I should have mentioned this before. Um, I'm hoping that just one of these is, rings true to you. It's not like all of these necessarily are going to ring true. I think at different points in our life, they probably will. But I'm hoping that there's like God's going to meet with us this morning and like highlight one and be like, this is one for you today. You can, ex- you can experience my grace. So Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. And then Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive each other. Forgive any complaint you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And as I was thinking about this, like holding on to hurts versus working through them, I thought of my three-year-old daughter, Addie. She sometimes will, she'll fall and trip. She's three. So she gets, she picks up bruises, nicks all the time. But one thing I've noticed that she does, it's like, Addie, Addie, when she's like crying or whatever, because um, she fell or hurt herself, or something happened with her brother, it's like, uh, Addie, can I see your ouchie? Can I see what's going on, sweetie? And I kind of come down like, hey, can I show me? And wh- what's her response? It's usually like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And as I've thought about it, she resists it, she resists it. And as I've thought about it, I've realized like, she's afraid of how much it might hurt to heal. So she pulls back from showing me what really hurts. And I think we do this, something like this sometimes when we hold on to our hurts by not dealing with them, by not bringing them out into the open. And we act, honestly, we can't, like I can't help my daughter. She might need some Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Or she might be fine. So you might just need a kiss and like a little like, hey, you're going to be okay. But in any case, the process of healing, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, it's stunted. Because we just don't say what, what it is. We don't say it, say it like it is. And then on the flip side, I think we can also hold on to hurts through unforgiveness. Through assuming the worst about other people. Through not extending the same grace Jesus has shown you. It's a big deal. Just this week, um, I had to apologize to someone. That I real I realized like I'm holding on to some stuff that's really unhealthy. I had put someone down in my heart. I had said things that were cruel and mean, and I had to be like, you know what? This isn't right. This is wrong. I needed to ask for forgiveness, and then also I've had to extend forgiveness for other things that were hurtful to me. This stuff should be normal, normal stuff in Christianity. Like we don't have to hold on to hurts. Jesus has actually forgiven us. I love this. If you've noticed, like, the, the command to forgive, it's not heavy-handed. It says, forgive as you've been forgiven. It says, Jesus has gone before you. He has forgiven you. So in light of his forgiveness, let's work through this. It's not just like, you need to forgive or else. It's not a threat. It's a, an invitation to experience the depth and the riches of his grace for us. And here's the cool part. Uh, this week when I had to apologize, you know what happened to me? I became more grateful for his grace. I became a little bit more humble. 
because I realized actually Jesus had to die for me because I'm sinful. I'm not awesome. Everything is not awesome. Um, it's also everything is in darkness either. Like there is a reality that we have a new way to walk through some of this stuff. We can bring things that are hidden into the light to find healing and forgiveness. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so sometimes we hold on to hurts versus working through them. Number four. I love lists. We're almost done. Number four. Sometimes we retreat into isolation as opposed to persevering community. Sometimes we're tempted to retreat into isolation versus persevering community. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 has an interesting word. It says, let's watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, to grow into a community centered on Jesus, we'll actually have to actively fight our tendency to slide into self-focus. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but our kind of temptation isn't to like, to love, or our inclination isn't just to like love, it's actually to slide into self-focus. But we don't have to. If we have each other's backs, we can actually, if we're, if we're committed to being in community, we can actually protect each other and have each other's backs. I love this. Verse 24 says, let's watch out for one another. Like, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be a part of a community that's like looking out for you and that you get to look out for people? We need each other. I'm going to read something that I thought was fascinating out of this book. Life in Community, if you're looking for a book to read about community, I think this is a really good one by Dustin Willis. <laughs> what it looks like to be a community centered on Jesus. And I thought this was fascinating. It's talking about yeah, this, this kind of retreat into isolation and self-focus. The writer basically says that um, for New Year's, you know how people do New Year's resolutions? Uh, he and his wife decided instead of doing New Year's resolutions to actually do, like pick a word that would carry it as a theme for the year. And so like his wife's word was thankfulness. His word was consistent because he saw in himself like just a lot of inconsistency. And then he had a, a, a five-year-old kid who chose the word read because he really wants to read. And then he's got a three-year-old who apparently, as they're talking, has like, which is so my three-year-old, her like face is covered in chocolate as they're eating a donut. Just smeared on her face. Like, what's the word, what's the word for you, Piper? This is the little girl's name. Piper confidently announced, my word is me. <laughs> this is the year of me. And I love that. I love her honesty. It's three-year-old. Because if we're honest, like, we think that way a lot, but we never say it. Most of us would choose this. It says, we want the year and everything in it to be about me. And our culture just reinforces that narrative. It's not like the culture's going to push you on that. The culture's actually going to be like, yeah, it is all about you. But individualism has a lot of issues. It'll often cause you and me to remove ourselves from our Christian family. The results are tragic. Consider the implications of a toddler saying, you know a toddler, you know mom and dad, I'm glad you had me, but I think I'll go it alone. I can eat solid food now. I can even make my way to the potty, usually, which is right where we're at as a family. I'm thankful for all you've done for me, but if you could just give me 20 bucks and then drop me off in downtown... I'll handle it from here. Yeah, this kid would not make it an hour. Yet this story plays out regularly in our churches. 
people who have put their faith in Jesus and been baptized, but they just slide into self-focus. It could be like busy work schedule or whatever, and then just kind of stop showing up, stop, stop being present, stop being engaged. And this guy's been a pastor for a long time, and he's like, he's seen this time and time again. And this is what he says, and I thought this was so insightful. He says that this is sort of like a toddler without a family. A toddler without a family. An infant Christian is no match for this world without the help of God's family, the church. Going at it alone is not the path for a disciple of Jesus. Through grace, we don't just belong to Christ, we also belong to one another. And so the church functions like a family. And I love this because this is exactly where we live right now with our toddler. The, ch- the church gets to teach the toddler to avoid things that will harm him. We have to do this every day with my kid. Every day, we're like, don't do that. That's not good for you. Don't do that. Don't stick your hand in that socket. Don't put that in your mouth. Take that out of your mouth. You will choke. This is probably like, for a lot of us who have kids, if you, were, if you don't have kids, this is what it was like for you when you were raised. This is what your parents told you. So we, we like tell them to avoid things that will harm them, and we per- tell them to pursue things that will help them mature and ultimately learn meaningful mission as an adult to teach this toddler how to grow up in community. That's basically, that's the life that we're invited into. It's not a life of isolation. It's actually a life of persevering in community. And there's, a, there's an example of this in the book. There's a guy who, was, who basically, I thought this was so helpful, a guy who became a Christian. He was like a pretty new believer, and his life had been like video games. Like he just played video games, and so he got married, and he just kept playing video games. And, th- and this is like, I think this is a true story from his church. That's a simple example, but he was like, as a church, like, we didn't just let him treat his wife like that. Like, we actually told him, like, no, like, you're called to more. Like, you're called to love your wife as Jesus loved her. And the church was there to rally around this man and to help him grow up. They had his back. They weren't comfortable with him just kind of staying in that space. And this guy grew. He stuck with it. And this is the kind of life that we can have together as a community. But it's going to require persevering in community, pressing in and not giving up. Finally, last thing, number five. I think um, we, have a, we can have a tendency to stay surface level as opposed to let people in. The last way I think that we can resist Jesus' words is to stay surface level versus letting other people in. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And so picture this. You're standing in front of a doctor. The doctor asks, what's going on? Why are you here? And you say, nothing. I'm fine. <laughs> Could you honestly expect a diagnosis or treatment or clarity Maybe it's just a virus that needs to run its course, but how would they know if you haven't talked to them about your symptoms? Kind of the same thing with Addie that she does. Every time we gather with God's people, every time, whether it's here on a Sunday, whether it's in your gospel community, whether it's over coffee, whatever it is, anytime you're with Christians, the great physician is asking you, how are you doing today? How are you today? And you have an opportunity to either hold it back, stay surface level, or you can go there. And what we're trying to do is actually create a community that's safe to where you can go there and actually get grace and find help. So I'm going to call the band up. I think, I think how we respond to these things really does determine the, the, 
the degree to which we'll enjoy Jesus' healing grace. So I think Jesus is kind of asking you, like, how are you today? What hurts today? And I love, I love that we have a choice. We actually have a choice to stay on the surface or let other people in. We have a choice to look at our, continue to look at our accomplishments and bring them to Jesus or to receive his grace. We have a choice to be isolated or to press in and persevere. We have a choice. And here's the, the amazing thing about God, which I've been really encouraged by and challenged by, is that he honors our choices. He honors our choices. He doesn't push himself on us at all. That's really challenged me in my parenting, by the way, to honor my kids' choices. It's really hard when they want to stick their finger in the socket, obviously. There's moments when we have to override them. But as they grow up, it's kind of like, more and more, I'm going to have to honor their choices. Warn them, love them. If you guys wouldn't mind standing up, I feel like this morning, Jesus is like, I want to, I'm going to honor your choice, but I want to help you. I want to change you. I want to bring healing to an area of your life. I want to let you go, help you go deep with people. I want to help you persevere in community. I want to help you work through your stuff. I want to help you enjoy relationship with the Father rather than use him for his gifts. I just want to ask a question like, which one of these stands out to you personally? Which one of these is the clearest one that's just ringing in your ear? I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask God to help you receive his grace in this moment and to figure out like what's next for you, what a, what a next step is, and then we'll, we'll sing some songs to Jesus. Um, Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your words, even though you say things sometimes that are hard for us to receive, they're good for us. Your words are life. I love that in this passage you say that you, whoever keeps your words has life. And I thank you that you've come to give us life. You honor our choices, but you've come to to extend grace and mercy to us in our time of need. And so I pray that this morning, that it would be a time where we would meet with you, where we would be with you, we would listen to your spirit, where we would respond and receive what we need for our time of need. So we love you, we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.